Have you seen the Have you seen the trailer for Capone? <coughs> oh, <laughs> that wasn't my reaction to the trailer. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for isolated film geeks by isolated film geeks. <laughs> How are we all doing, gang? We are still all in our separate locations. Some of us are having technical problems, but I think everybody's with us right now. So, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. I'm Scott. It's like you forgot your name then. <laughs> Isolation's getting to your man. <laughs> I have not needed to use it for weeks now. Cabin fever has set in. So, we're back with another episode. Uh, we're still all in isolation. We're still doing well, I hope. As I hope you are too and staying safe. We don't have any new films to review, but that's okay because we've got lots and lots of news that Andy has gathered from around the World Wide Web. Andy, what have you got for us? Let's start, as we have been doing for the past few weeks, with the updates on how the coronavirus is impacting upon the industry that we love. Is this thing still going on, I ask? Well, you know, it's all fake news as far as I'm concerned. I don't think there's any risk at all. Nothing's going on. It's all it's all just a ploy to get us to subscribe to Disney Plus, <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, but no, um, it is still going on, as everyone should be aware. We are still all isolated, and the impact on the industry is still causing some um, ripples. AMC Cinemas, the biggest chain in the US, is reportedly filing for bankruptcy. That's shocking. The chain has a $4.9 billion debt which the bankruptcy will help them to manage, which will also, you know, it, everyone who says bankruptcy is that, like, it's it's a really, really bad thing. It means that they've gone under. It's a way to, like, reorganize the debts and get themselves onto a, a level footing again, which will aid them in reopening when the time comes. However, it's obviously caused ripples throughout the industry with Cineworld once again taking a hit on its share price um, it plummeted down to 40 pence yesterday. Oh, my goodness. And I've not checked it today. But it, it, they were starting to get a good stable footing, getting up to like 70 and 80 pence per share. But they've plummeted again because they've got a huge stake in the Regal chain in the US, which is the second biggest chain. And if there's such uncertainty about how AMC are doing, then obviously Regal is going to have some skepticism around it. In addition... Cineworld's proposed takeover of one of the Canadian chains looks like it's going to get overturned, which they'd taken out the loans for the payment of that, increasing their debt, with nothing to spend it on and no new equity to invest into the company. Obviously, it's, it's a very turbulent time for you know, Cineworld as a market leader, but for the industry as a whole. And you know, for people like me and Scott who work within the cinema industry, it, it is worrying for people like us. You know, we want to know that our jobs are still going to be there at the end of all this isolation. And we talked about this in the last episode because what effect it has on, on one cinema chain will certainly have an, a counter effect on another cinema chain. We are in a, a difficult position where, to be frank, we don't know when we're coming out of it. Here in the UK, it looks like they're extending the lockdown period from its initial three weeks. In the States, there's so much uncertainty as to when it happens. So the, the worry is, is that, that, you know, well, there's no new product coming through. No one's going to the cinema. Uh, they're just big empty buildings sat doing nothing. That, that we're going to lose some of the some of the great cinema chains that we have here in the UK and abroad. I, I still have a feeling, though, that when this is done, I think we're going to crave social interaction again. And I think people will want to get out, will be sick of, of watching stuff on TV, no matter even though they've got into Disney+, Plus, they've got into Netflix and Prime and all those sorts of things. I think there's going to be a need for people to 
to to get together and flock together and see movies. And I think the the desire to go and see new product, just when that is, is is the hard thing to to come to know. Aside from like business wise aspect of it, there's films once again that have been delayed uh, that have had various issues over time that are now moving straight to streaming. Amazon have just picked My Spy up, which I, I know Scott was really looking forward to My Spy. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> well, you might, you might not have to wait that long, much longer because Amazon have picked it up. That's going straight over to um, the Amazon Prime account. Trolls, which got released direct to digital, has been the, the biggest digital release of, of all time in the UK. No surprises there because there was no nowhere else to find it. But it's it's paid off them beautifully. But it has again sparked this whole worry: is that well, if the film companies know that they can make this money by going straight to digital, where does that leave the cinemas? Well, I, th- I think it's an interesting point, Andy. But I, what I do I do feel is is that we're, we're watching films like this down to necessity. Well, we're not watching Trolls too. We're, well, to we're not watching Trolls you. too. <laughs> No, but, but we are watching kid. any any home release as a necessity because it's the only 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 avenue we've got right now. And I, I do think if the choice comes back to see things in the cinema, we will we will want to go back. And I think there's a social the social interaction side alone is is a big enough reason for everybody to want to go back into it. Trolls may have broken all sorts of download records. Is it finan- the financial equivalent of a great box office run and then doing well on download? Because that'll dictate whether they eliminate the um, financial stream of cinema. I've not looked at the full figures, and it'll be interesting to see what it does over the like over like a two, three-week period to be able to compare it to similar films of a similar vein of the past. I can genuinely see it that with a lower-budget film there might be more more leaning for some companies when they aren't confident that a film's going to be huge to just go, well, you know what? We can actually make this money on streaming. I think the big blockbusters, I think your Marvel films, your Star Wars, your Bonds, etc., they've got to be cinema releases. Uh, but it is... It, it is kind of paying into this whole, like, you know, Netflix funding Scorsese kind of thing that streaming is no longer seen as a really negative thing. And they've shown that, like, the home purchase market is strong enough to sustain a, a, a new release. So Bob Iger is back in charge at Disney. He was set to step down and hand the reins over to Bob Chapnick. But with the COVID pandemic going on, the decision's been made for him to stick around and aid the company over this time. Disney, with so many holdings in, like, theme parks, etc., where people can't gather and all the cinema aspect, the company's under a lot of financial strain. And it just, I think basically just went, well, it's a bit unfair for you to hand over the reins now, isn't it? <laughs> so he's sticking around just to help them weather this storm because his experience within, like, you know, bringing the business to where it is at this point in time, it's priceless what he can bring to it at this point in time. And him to, him to walk away with some cash in his pocket would just be a bad sport, really. I, I think, you know, it's steady hands. Disney are in a, in a very prime position where they, they are dominating most of the cinema output at the moment. Uh, and I think I've read over the last, last week or so that with all the backlog of movies that they've got which haven't been released, they can release a, a brand new film weekly yeah, once this is over. <laughs> but with someone like Bob Iger there, it's it's still steady hands. It's not rocking the boat. And, and that will keep definitely the shareholders happy. We're, we're all looking forward to the next Bill and Ted's film. Of course. We can't wait. In the, in the wait for even a trailer for the Bill and Ted's film, they've released some colouring pages to keep you occupied in isolation during this uh, COVID time. They released a colouring book way back in 2018, which was based upon the comic book version of the Bill and Ted series. It was a most excellent comic book. Did you ever read those, by the way? They were fantastic. I did, yes. 
They were fantastic. They were so <laughs> well done. They were very funny. They got re-released by a, a, another company after Marvel lost the rights, so they, they, they're easy to track down if you want to check them out. Did you get round to them, Scott? No, I, I, I'm blissfully ignorant of uh, the fact they were Bill and Ted comics. Uh, it sounds interesting. Did they do any cool crossovers? No, no, there was just it was just Bill and Ted. It was, but it were fantastic reads. They were so funny. Evan Dawkins was the uh, artist. So you know, during self isolation, then doing a bit of coloring is actually supposed to be very, very good for the uh, uh for for your for your own mental well-being well the adult com- coloring books have been a huge boom over the past decade it's become like a huge therapy thing that people buy like little i mean the wife's got thousands of them and i'm pretty sure that she's got more of them than i've got funko pops my goodness they, they just sit there and just like it's just little triangles color that triangle color that and little pretty patterns so you know why not have some bill and ted's coloring sheets which tell you to you know st- stay excellent and stay at home to find these I mean, loads of news sites have reported on them i've done the links to them and you basically just download them from there uh, we found them on Am- empire website if you just go onto google do a search for bill and ted's coloring pages and you will find, I think there's three or four at the moment, but I'm hoping there's going to be some more. I'm going to be downloading them and printing them off and uh, spending some time colouring some Bill and Ted's. Excellent. Fantastic. So let's move away from coronavirus. Let's move on to other news, the more positive aspect of the film productions, because things are starting to gain momentum. There's been a lot of news over the past week. Marvel, in particular, there's been a few bits of news around there. Sam Raimi? Yes, yeah, Sam Raimi's finally signed on officially now to as the director for Doctor Strange. Yep. Re- remember how he was kind of screwed over in the past with Marvel on the Spider-Man films when he all creative rights kind of stripped away from him over Spider-Man 3 and he was forced to use a character he didn't want? Yeah, I think that was more of a Sony deal, yeah. wasn't it, I think, than, uh, than the Marvel Cinematic Universe we know now. We reported on the Sam Raimi rumours a few episodes ago. And I, th- I think we were all quite excited, weren't we? We're very excited. The, the, the interesting thing is when we were talking about clearly obvious directors to take over Doctor Strange, Sam Raimi's name never came up, which is the most obvious choice of, of, of director. Yeah, uh, but are we all just desperate to see a alternate Doctor Strange uh, played by Bruce Campbell? Well, the interesting point is, who yeah. is Bruce Campbell going to be playing? Uh, I, I, you know what? He was always my pick for Mysterio before they did him properly. It'll be just a minor, obscure character in a sideline somewhere. Or, seems I was going through the multiverse, they'll suddenly weave Ash within the Marvel MCU framework for some reason. Ah, that'd be great. <laughs> I've got some Marvel uh, meets Evil Dead uh, comic books. But he is the perfect choice for director. He is. I mean, yeah, he, he's he said... In an interview that he always loved the character as a kid, even though he came further down the line to like Spider-Man and Batman, which were his favorite characters. But his Doctor Strange was definitely within his top five. And we saw what he could do when, you know, you have to remember that Spider-Man, even though the first Spider-Man film does look a bit weak when you look at it today, it looks a bit dated. But it was so comic book. He's got that love for comic books and he's got the aesthetic for comic books and he's got the horror aspect of it that he can weave into the darker aspects of the dimensions. I'm really looking forward to it. I think, you know, Scott Derrickson, when he left, yeah, it was sad news, but you can't think of a better name to have took up the reins. Couldn't agree more. And he signed his production designer, who was the production designer on his Oz film. So that's going to be an interesting choice for for definitely for visuals. Rumours that John Krasinski was up for a role in the MCU. They've been shot down by the actor himself in the past 24 hours. He confirmed that he had a virtual meeting with Feige, but went on to say that it's probably going to be the closest he ever got to playing a comic book hero. And then 
on, like on his video chat, broke, did his fourth wall breaking Jim Halpert face. Maybe it's just misdirection. Maybe because nothing's been signed yet, he doesn't want to start people, you know, getting too excited. Personally, I think he'd be an ideal Reed Richards, and I think it'll be a shame if he doesn't get it. But there's also the thing that he could come in as director. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, with the success of A Quiet Place One, and and we're waiting for now for number two then I think the the chances of him coming in as a director is probably very, very high. But from what, I'm ga- I, from what I gather, lots of people take meetings with Marvel. It doesn't mean anything, does it? Yeah, and, and whilst I've been really sold on uh, Krasinski and Blunt being cast, the, the internet's so taken with it, it's almost leaving Marvel no option. And I don't feel like casting should be yeah. fan-led. I, I like it when it's slightly left field, but I see it as soon as it's announced. Yeah. I personally think that he'd be he'd be ideal for it, but I am open to anyone else taking the role. I don't want to be one of these people who's like, well, if he doesn't get it, I'm refusing to watch it. Of course, I'm going to watch it. Not only is it Marvel, it's Fantastic Four, and everyone knows how much I adore the Fantastic Four. I've got my Galactus toy in my hand at the moment. That's how much I love the Four. <laughs> uh, so it was all it's all just been rumours and gossip at the moment, which people have tried to make out to be something more than what it was. Ruffalo, in, in addition. There's been talks for him to appear in She-Hulk series when that eventually gets into production. Well, that'd be interesting. That would tie into the origin story from the comic. Well, he's confirmed in an interview that there have been talks and it is on the table, but there's no done deal yet. Uh, It's basically, you want to find the right way for it to work without it feeling like a forced inclusion. It looks from that, the fact that they're saying that they can't find the right reason for it to work yet, suggests to me that they're not going to do it as the same origin story from the comics. So it's it, interesting because, it, well, it was one of those hackneyed uh, uh, comic plot devices of how to make his cousin yeah. into the She-Hulk. But it's interesting to see how the She-Hulk is going to work out anywhere on the big screen. Are they going to go with an actor or are they going to go with CGI, a combination of both? Well, we'll have to just have to wait and see. Um, one guy who dabbled with Marvel in the past, but not through Marvel Marvel, was Josh Trank, who did that rather messy Fantastic Four film for Fox. Well, he did half of the film and then someone else came in and ghost directed loads of extra scenes and changed the whole film and messed it all up. Well, he's finally got a new film coming out. Well, he has been in director prison for the last uh, couple of years based after Fantastic Four. Interesting because it's it's cropped up on Netflix in the last couple of weeks. And has anybody been tempted to go back and revisit it? Has anybody ever revisited it after its initial run? I did, Scott. (laughs) Uh, the last time I watched it, I vaguely recall being a bit like, this isn't as bad as they say for about a third of it. And then you go, oh, yeah, it, it is. It does <laughs> hit a point, doesn't it, when it goes drastically downhill. The first 25 to 30 minutes are absolutely perfect. They are Ultimate Fantastic Four, issue one. The background of Reed and Ben's friendship, the origins of the characters meeting each other before they become the four. And that is really good. And I was well and truly bought into it. And when I revisited it, it was like, oh, maybe the rest of the film was, was, wasn't was as bad as I remembered. And then they got the powers. It was just a fever dream. <laughs> then they got the powers and everything went really, really south rapidly. It should never be the worst bit, should it, when they become the heroes? I was reminiscing to when they didn't have any powers and they were such great characters to follow. It's, it, it is a mess of a film. Revisiting yeah. it didn't do it any service. And I think that it was a great cast. They were just misused. And Josh Trank distancing himself from that film a year before it came out was probably the best thing that he ever did. Although he was basically, like you say, he, he was in director blacklist. 
Have you seen the trailer for Capone? Um, yeah, I've seen the trailer. I'm very intrigued with it. I, I love, I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this before, how I love, like, the Capone era of Prohibition, gangsters and things like that. And, you know, Untouchables is one of my favourite films. But this is, it, it's looking at Capone after 10 years of imprisonment, age 47, and onset of dementia starting to kick in. And using that as a plot device of throwing back to visions of how he became who he was, basically getting confused with his current life. Uh, It's Tom Hardy playing a Tom Hardy take on Al Capone, which it's Tom Hardy, let's be honest. He's great, but he only has one way of putting any role in, and that's to put a strange voice on. (laughs) Um, But I'm excited because Josh Trank showed so much promise when Chronicle came out, and it was a shame that Fantastic Four set him back so much. I'm hoping this is going to be a success. I'm hoping... It's going to get in, in some name recognition again. Let him get his career back. Uh, great cast alongside. I mean, Linda mm-hmm. Cardellini, uh, Matt Dillon, Kyle McLaughlin, and Noel Fisher, uh, all co-starring in it. It's a great cast. Yeah. It's a great premise. I'm excited. I think the fact that he's he's not gone down a genre route, or he's not gone down a sci-fi or superhero genre route to make his, uh, make his entrance back into the world, because he was tapped to do the Boba Fett movie for a long time. Uh, until he went into director prison. Uh, so it's interesting that he's going to come back with something that might redefine him. It's a serious movie against a serious topic. So we'll just have to wait and see. Yep. What else do you have, Andy? Um, the first glimpses of June have been revealed. Uh, have you all seen the publicity shots that have been released and the set shots? I have. And I've never been a big Dune fan. I wasn't a, a fan of the book. I did enjoy the David Lynch movie. Couldn't tell you for the life of me what went on in it, but I did have a good time with it. And I was surprised at how much, and, and you might be able to answer this better than, than, than I understand, is that it looked like the the David Lynch movie. The, the costume designs were very, very similar from just a few few clips that have been, uh, have been doing the rounds at the moment. Well, that's one thing that Lynch's film got right. He got the look of it beautiful. The still suit design was... It was well thought through. It was like, you know, it, it's designed to stay out in the desert for weeks on end, recycling your your body sweat and all your fluids so that you've got something to drink. And so there's all the design of the, like the costumes, the like the spiritual design of all the Bene Jesuit nuns with the hooded robes, everything had to look like that. And even in like, you know, artist sketches from when the books came out, that's what it kind of looked like. So it's it's got the same kind of aesthetic visually. As a fan of the Dune books, I looked at those images and I started getting very excited. I know that there's a change to um, Baron Harkonnen that they've made to it because Harkonnen is like, he's supposed to be a mad, like really like grotesque character. And you'll know from um, the David Lynch film that like he had his boils and blisters and he was a slovenly grotesque warlord basically. But they've redesigned him for this to be more powerful and more bulked. And basically, that they took the he's a rhino kind of approach, that he's an overbearing, monstrous man. And that's one change that I'm interested to see whether it works for me as a fan of the books. Because it, it's hard as such a huge fan of the books to let go sometimes. The casting's great. The casting looked fantastic. Stellan Stargard, Starsgard as um, Harkonnen. I'm fine with that. I just need to see some... I need to see a trailer to make me mind up completely on how they're redefining that character. The rest of the characters look great. Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides looks marvellous. And in the books, he's supposed to be like 13, 14 years old. I'm fine to not have young teenagers playing these roles. I'm not that much of a precious, like, oh, don't touch my books. I think he looks great. I think all the cast look perfect. And 
what a great director we've got anyway. When's the release date for it? When are we looking at? If it's not being moved. They, they've still not m- mentioned any move, so it's still looking at just before Christmas this year. It's got that Star Wars slot, as we now refer to it. But I do wonder whether it will shunt with so many other films now coming out in November to early December that it's going to be a very crowded time. The, the worry is that if they move it, if they move it to like the February slot, for sci-fi, the February slot has always been a death knell. It's always been a, oh, really? This is a new sci-fi venture. Jupiter Ascending, we remember that. Thankfully, I've managed to blister it out of my mind. We don't want June to suffer from being released at a time when people go, well, if it's not a recognised property like an MCU, then it's obviously getting put here to dump it because this is only part one of a two-part film. I mean, that the splitting it into two parts was purely the director's choice. He stated he wouldn't sign up to make June unless he had a chance to do it over two films to do the story justice. Because again, David Lynch's film, apparently the original cut was around about five hours and it got cut down significantly because that was too much for a film. Is that the reason I didn't understand it then? Yeah, there's a huge amount missing out of it. There's, there's like a third of the book missing from that film. When, when the whole war, battle on, like, war on June starts, it basically starts and five minutes later it's finished in David Lynch's film. That's a huge proportion of the book. It'd be interesting. I hope we still get it. And I'm, I must admit, because of the director, I'm more than excited about it. More than I'm a, I'm a fan of the books or the, or the previous film, it's the director that's bringing me into this. Ever been much of a fan of June, Scott? Uh, no, I have never watched it, never read it. Just, just uh, it's been off my radar. Well, I'm aware of it, obviously, but... That might be an interesting one for a deep dive, then. <laughs> it could be worth, definitely worth revisiting. Uh, we talked just before we came on air about which was one of the uh, iconic horror shots from TV, and that's a big screen version, because we're doing all things Stephen King at the moment, a big screen version of Salem's Lot. Gary Doberman is bringing it to the screen. Annabelle Creation was his, wasn't it? He's, he's writing and directing it uh, with James Wan, Royal Lee and Mark Wolper, who are producing. The vampire horror novel by Stephen King is one of his most beloved of books and the adaptations of it to date still hold up when you rewatch them now. Absolutely. The Toby Hooper TV version. I remember seeing it as a, as a kid when it came out and it's still has those moments in it which were just pure brilliance and things you'd not seen. You'd not seen that sort of horror on TV before. And the kid at the window has become an iconic image. It was it was amazingly well done. It just proves, actually, I think King works very well over over a miniseries and time to explore the characters and, and, and explore the world. There was a, a, another updated version with Rob Lowe, which apart from having the, the ending, which was closer to the, to the book, was very, very disappointing. But the Toby Hooper version is great. So I don't feel like this, as, as the same with it, is stepping on any toes because it's, it, it, as a movie, it's its own unique version. I just hope they can compact it into a two-hour movie. Uh, there's other horror films currently in the roundup at the moment. Fede Alvarez, who gave us Don't Breathe an Evil Dead remake, is making a zom- zombie pandemic movie called 16 States for Lionsgate and Vertigo. Uh, which is going to follow a mother trying to reach her family at the height of a zombie pandemic. Anyone feel that whenever a film is talking about, it's going to be talking about a pandemic at this day and age, it's kind of a bit too close to realism? I, I totally agree. I, I Even now, if I'm watching Mad Max, I'm starting to think a trip down to the local Aldi is almost like a Mad Max episode. Have you seen that? Contagion has had a new lease of life. Somewhere. Yeah, it's suddenly, everyone seems to be like jumping onto like things like Contagion and Outbreak is another one. That everyone's jumped on. <laughs> I 
can't think of any other time a film that kind of just went to the mire, just weirdly got this new lease of life out of nowhere <laughs> without any... It's weird. Is it because there's an ending, do you think? Yeah. I think it gives everyone a taste of what might happen in their worst fears, isn't it? Well, I think there's that element, but I think because they're movies, they reach a conclusion, and, and both Outbreak and Contagion, and Contagion is 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 very close to what's happening in the world right now, almost prophetic in its in its storytelling. But I do believe that people are turning to them to say, as you've just said, Scott, looking at them and going, let's see how, how the cinematic world is treating it. But also, I do feel that they they reach an ending and they reach a solution. And I think that's what, what people are looking for. Uh, they're waiting for A little for that glimmer moment. of hope, basically. Yeah, because there's a there's a, a, an answer to the virus in Contagion. Um, and we see them pull through. But also, if you think about Contagion, it, it does happen. It takes a couple of years to everything to sort itself out. Mm. But they are a by-the-book guide to surviving in a pandemic to a degree. David Bruckner, who gave us the ritual and the signal has been given the job of bringing the Hellraiser franchise to the big big screens again. Hellraiser, is that one of those franchises that we think has kind of been and gone? Yes and no. Hellraiser 1 and 2, great films. The franchise then rapidly dug itself into a very, very, very bad, messy grave. And over the years, it's become a joke that the Hellraiser franchise dragged on so long. But at the same time, Let's take a look at the Halloween franchise. But have, did they ever really recover? Uh, enough to do a couple of remakes and now be making a sequel to the most recent remake. I think so. I think they've definitely recovered it. They've, they've got a new audience, and I think that's what they want to do with the Hellraiser one. It's, it's not going to have like Doug Bradley as Pinhead. It's going to be completely recast. I'd, I'm all up for um, Doug Jones to be playing like a more, more akin to the book Hellbound Heart Pinhead, who is... It's, is not like the mysterious one that we see from the screens. He's a very skinny and androgynous kind of character. I'm interested to see what they do with it, because I, I do love the first two Hellraiser films. It's from the third film onwards that it just rapidly fell apart. And I think there's a lot that they could really dig into with the lore and the mythology that the first two films created that the later films didn't really tackle. The fourth film, Bloodlines, that tried to go back and look at the mythology but then turned into Pinhead in Space by the end of it and fell apart. That's the kind of aspect that I want, not the Pinhead in Space. I want the digging into the mythology. I want to be afraid of the Cenobites again. I want to explore the dimensions of hell that are hinted at in those first two films. And that's why I think it's ripe for a retelling. A really bloody, brutal horror film. It's got the psychological horror in there, but it's also got the gore horror and the scares that some people seem to gravitate towards more. It's a great franchise. Comic book series have done some great alternate stories and digging down through the lore. There's a lot that they can tackle. Do we know if Clive Barker's connected to it in any way? Well, he's been pushing for this remake for quite a while himself because he grew um, a bit distant from the film series as it progressed. He distanced himself more and more as it went along because it wasn't reflecting what he'd done. So he's been wanting it to get a proper relaunch the big screen because he knows what the horror potential of this creation of his has fingers crossed it will do his um, vision justice and just on a side note we've not seen as much in the way of the way that Stephen King has always had a great volume of work we've not seen as much from Clive Barker over the last few years or is that just me I'm not on the radar with it his stuff got I mean there was the midnight meat train about 10 years ago now uh, was one of his that got adapted from his books of blood there was also Clive Barker's books of blood which adapted three of his short stories into one 
film. But generally, there's not been a lot of Clive Barker stuff. But recently, there's been a lot of talk of various things. I mean, Nightbreed or Cabal has been talked about getting a new version. We've got, obviously, Hellraiser. And uh, Candyman is another of his creations. Which is, again, on, on delay at the moment, isn't it, if I, if I think on? Yeah, yeah. That's um, currently under delay, but that's a hotly anticipated one because... It's coming from producer Jordan Peele um, with Nia DaCosta directing. And the Candyman franchise is one that didn't really get bad. There was three films in the series that each of them were good, even though two of them went straight to home release. They were still solid films. So that is one that has never gone so weak that people go, eh, are we bothered anymore? Anything else you got for us, Andy? Uh, let's just do last last bit of horror news is that, um, who remembers the 2001 film The Others? Yeah, With Nicole Kidman. Yep. Uh, well, there's plans to reinvent and modernise the story, setting it in a contemporary world. The original was a, a great little period piece. Yeah, a war widow helped, like taking her children to an isolated mansion. They've got a rare skin disease. And then three mysterious servants like appear and the house's terrible secrets begin to be revealed. And I thought when it, when it came out, it was a great film because it, oh, it was, was a ghost story with a difference. I know that it's been out for almost two decades, but I'm not going to spoil the reveal on that film here. Absolutely marvellous reveal. And it's a it's one of those films that when you go back and rewatch it, it still lives up to it. How do we feel about a modern day interpretation? To me, the problem with it is is the reveal was so significant and, and came out of nowhere, even though it's hinted at all the way through, that that was, that was the principle of the film. It wasn't just a twist for the twist's sake. It's like if you were to do Sixth Sense without realising that Bruce Willis is a ghost. It's, it's so intense. Uh, such a, a major part of a uh, part of the storyline that to to come into it, it you, you have to find a fresh way of doing something with that reveal. What do you think, Scott? I, I absolutely agree. It's it's like um, you're just doing it. It's like it's like remaking Saw or something. It's like the the reason I don't watch any of the recent Saw films is because that first one has a great horror movie premise. And then after that, you're just chasing your tails, trying to recreate it with varying twists of varying ridiculousness. And unless you directly adapt a story like that, you're just chasing your tail, trying to recreate a formula all the time, aren't you? Yeah, you've got to bring something new to the party, haven't you? You've got yeah. to bring something that that suggests it's more than just just that one twist, because... If you're doing another's remake, you can't afford not to put that that twist in. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, final bit of news. Are we fans of Community? Yeah. We love Community. Have we been re-watching them now that they're all on Netflix? No, because I did it not long ago when it was on 4OD. <laughs> and it was on Netflix previously, wasn't it? And it went. We lost it off the series and it's brought back They again. never had the last series because the last season of it was uh, funded by Yahoo, I believe. Yeah. Right. Part of their attempt to make TV shows. And so they never had that final season as part of the streaming before, but now they've got the whole lot, the whole six. Joe McHale has been doing multiple interviews recently, and he's been hinting that there might be some momentum to the eventual movie. He's really optimistic that something will happen soon and that there's way more rumblings than there used to be. Apparently, Alison Brie had tweeted him that she'd received a related call from Sony to do with it, although he's he's commented that he's not had that call yet and he's worried if he's going to get recast. But... Six seasons and a movie was that prediction that they, they kind of had as the running gag in the whole thing. Yeah. We had the six seasons. 
maybe that movie is in the pipeline. It's let's hope though, so. And let's hope they get Chevy Chase back because I really missed him when he left the series. And that was the half the problem with towards the end of Community when, when characters uh, started to drift away. Uh, and the, yeah. uh, the first three seasons were just absolutely some of the funniest television I've ever seen in my life. Is there many films based on TV shows that really hit the mark, though? And then aren't we just wanting this to fulfil a gag rather than any sort of need or demand? Yeah. And I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point, Scott. I mean, Star Trek came back and, and proved that you can do a TV series as a film series, even though it had to eventually move away from what the core ideal was for it to work yeah. perfectly. Uh, and, and, you know, Mission Impossible, even though it's not the same cast, has uh, again proved that it's a successful TV series can be turned into a into a feature film uh, a feature film series if it's done well if it's done with with love and the right characters Dan Harmon's writing it and they get the cast back it's like anything if the recipe's there then the dish will turn out well do you think the Russos had return well according to Joe Joe McHale that everyone who was involved in the series is pretty much up for the idea of getting back for it. So I don't think I don't think you can rule the Russos out. Oh well. Whether it'll be a cinematic release is another matter. I personally think, like, whilst I want the movie, I'll be happy if it's a movie straight to Netflix. Now yeah. that Netflix are really promoting it, I mean, it, it's top of like the suggestions list every time that I log on to Netflix at the moment. Even though I've watched it, it's like, no, 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 watch it, mate. Watch it. You should watch it. You know it you love it. It's saying Netflix is saying that to you right now. You know you love it. You never watched Tiger King. You, you're more of a community kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and that rounds up the news for this week okay so we've had no great film releases for us to go through which is part of the whole raison d'etre for this uh, podcast what we've been doing is instead of looking ahead we've been looking back so the last two weeks we've done a deep dive on a particular movie last episode we did superman the movie and prior to that we did highlander and prior to that we did highlander because scott had never seen it this week is a, a firm favorite of mine a film that I absolutely adore. And it's also one of the films that I have to show potential girlfriends. If they don't get it, there's no relationship here, honey. And that <laughs> film is Princess Bride. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. You may have heard tales of damsels in distress. I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? But you've never seen anything like the Princess Bride. Inconceivable! She gets kidnapped. He gets killed. I've seen worse. But it all ends up okay. Have fun storming the castle. The Princess Bride, a new comedy by Rob Reiner. Rated PG. Now playing at theatres everywhere. Much beloved film from 1987 by Rob Reiner, in which a young homesick boy is told a fantasy story about a farm boy turned hero who quests to be reunited with his one true love. And the kid doesn't want to hear this story, but as it goes on along, he realises that a love story isn't necessarily just a love story. Now, as I said, I absolutely adore this film. I have uh, an interesting fact. I've got to get it out there from the get-go is I was an extra in this film. You were what? <laughs> I was an extra in Princess Bride because not many people know that it was shot almost on our doorstep. It was shot uh, in and around parts of Sheffield. There's a, a place called the Longacre Estate, which is just outside of uh, the city that we live in. And that was a major part of uh, a part of the setting. Uh, and it's a film that I absolutely adore. It's, it's an almost perfect film, even though it's got a number of plot holes. Not all of it works. Not all of it makes sense. 
I think I think it's it's a beautiful film. It's it's exactly everything that a a great fairy story is, and that's timeless. But I know, particularly Andy, that you don't share the love. I'm going to let Scott say what he thinks of it before I'll um, come along and ruin the party. <laughs> it's tough, Princess Bride, because a lot of why it works is also why. For me, it's not one of my personal favourites because it, it's it's a really good sort of self-aware sort of... I want to say a parody, but it's almost like uh, it's very loving whilst doing it of like fantasy stories and stuff. And, and it's it's got a lot of heart to it. But apart from a, a lot of quote-worthy and memorable moments, which it does definitely have, it's not that riotously funny and it's not that... I don't think I could show it anyone and it get universal love. I think it's very much a right place, right time sort of film. But I do enjoy it. I often find that I'm in the minority whenever this film is mentioned. Now, I didn't watch it when it first came out. I had no interest in watching it when it first came out. But so many people had gone on about how amazing this film was over the years that about a decade later, I then went, okay, then let's give it a shot. And I didn't get it. I watched the whole film going, huh? What? Am I, have I got, is, the two, is there another VHS somewhere else called The Princess Bride? Is this like one of them where you go into a video store and you accidentally take home the porn version of Safe and Private Ryan? And I, I was just like, this can't be the same film because everyone says how it's so amazingly told and how hilarious it was, and I couldn't get it. And then cut to only about five years ago, and I was like, maybe, just maybe, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I'm going to give it another shot. And uh, no, nope, I still didn't get it. It feels very cosplay-esque and amateur dramatics throughout. The cast didn't connect with me. I watched it thinking, well, it's out the way. I can move on to something else now. And overall, it was a decidedly average film that, like Scott's already mentioned, is notable for the quotes and memes that it started. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. And inconceivable! But nothing's really funny. It's not the hilarious, rip-roaring comedy that loads of people tried to tell me it was. It's not the great adventure film that people tried to tell me it was. It felt like a TV movie. And I genuinely don't understand the love for it that so many people have. I mean, I know that you, you've got your personal, like, you know, it, it was you were an extra on there. It was filmed locally. There's that aspect of it. And you were there at the right, like Scott said, you had to be there at the time. I'm with Scott on this one that... This is not a film that I feel that I could turn around to someone and say, oh, watch this, you'll love it. Whereas like with Highlander, I had no doubts that Scott would embrace it because the love for that is for how cheesy it is and how ridiculous it is, but it's a great adventure. But with this, I don't feel that I could sit it, sit down and go, here you go, watch this, you're going to enjoy this without walking away going, whoa, and backing away as though we've just planted a bit of stick of dynamite and people are going to hate you for it. I, I don't... I, I don't connect with it, and I don't know. I, I don't quite know what the love. Maybe for the film then is. I can try and win you over by by trying to tell you why I why I absolutely adore it. Firstly, I'm a massive uh, Rob Reiner fan as a director. Uh, at that point, he'd come off uh, This is Spinal Tap. Uh, he was, uh, uh, I think, it was just slightly before Stand by Me. It's written by, for me, the greatest screenwriter of all time, William Goldman. And if you ever even get a chance to read the book. Uh, which is an abridged version of, of, a, of a story. It's, it does have that all-knowing, all almost um, classical throwaway Jewish humour to it. Uh, and you get that with the Billy Crystal character. I, I don't think, for a start, it's a rip-roaring, laugh-a-minute film, and I've never seen it like that. 
I've seen it in the same way that it's it's a it's 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 just a, a play on that whole fairy story. I think we've all been that kid when we've had a fairy story read to us, and it gets to the kissy parts, and Fred Savage goes as the kid. Uh, I want to skip this bit, and and Peter Falk as the, as the grandfather reading reading the story. I connect as much to that as I connect to to the rest of it of of, of being that that kid who's who didn't like the kissy parts in in fairy stories, but will sit through it for the great adventure. I think it's the knowingness, and and I think Scott, you mentioned about this. It's the knowingness of the fairy story. I, I've never been a big fairy story fan as a child, but because this upended that and made it contemporary, gave it contemporary humour. I, I just bought into in, into it, and I think that what the film has in tons is absolute is absolute heart. I think it's it has huge plot holes that you could drive uh, a, a bus through. It has parts of it that don't make any sense whatsoever but to me that's the nature of it because most most fairy stories don't have have a, a great lick of, of logic to them and it is kind of it was kind of pre-shrek for the dissection of 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 the of that kind of fairy story i think carrie elwes postmodern take yeah that that postmodern take of it uh, without ever ripping it apart i think it's it stays true to it i think there's an honesty to it that it's it is a fairy story and the absurdities of fairy story are all there. And it does have that knowingness, but it never dissects it. It never, never tears it apart. It doesn't become a pastiche of it. It becomes a fairy story in its own right. And I think the heart, I think the 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 love story between incredibly young Carrie Elwes and incredibly young Robin Wright on it just gives it a, an emotional tug. I think it's it's just got a, a got a simplicity to it, a simplicity to it that that makes it very, very special to me. I think the the one thing I, I would change if they were to come back to it is is the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack's really dated, even though it's Mark Knopfler. And the fact that the princess does very, very little to it, apart from be rescued every five minutes, that hasn't dated well. But the, the heart side and the, and the love that's been invested to it. And I know Rob Reiner, as a, as a film director, loved the story so much that he had to make it. And I think that shines in every frame of the film. I'll grant you, it's not a laugh a minute, but it is memorable. All the gags that do fall are just lovingly put into the script and make you smile every time they come up to it. And for me, coming back to it, it's like reading the book again. It's it's an old friend that comes to visit. And I have a tendency to look at it when you go, you know what? feeling a bit sad i'll chuck princess bride on it's a comfort film it, it's a great comfort film and i think the people who do have have the invested love for it it is a comfort film in the same way to me that it's a wonderful life's a comfort film i've seen it tons and tons of times there are moments in in it's a wonderful life when you go i'd like to skip this five minutes because it's starting to drag on now and then it reaches a point where you go and that's why I stay with it because I've invested, I've invested the love into it. There was the rumours uh, last year about the proposed remake of the Princess Bride, which were met with a barrage of people online crying out that it's a travesty to consider remaking such a classic. And again, at that point in time, I felt like the lone voice going, "Is it though? <laughs> is, is it a bad, bad, bad idea to go back to it?" I do think that there's some story in there and there's some elements in there that could make a great film. It's just that that is not the great film. And so I'm not averse to a remake of it, to go back to it, to give that story another chance and, you know, maybe help me appreciate it. From my point of view, no amount of rose-tinted lenses will ever make me think otherwise about that film. And I do like Rob Reiner's films. I adore Spinal Tap. I love, absolutely love Stand By Me. I think he's a great director. I just 
didn't feel it on this film. So weirdly in the middle of your birth, because I can completely see both your points, because I watched it with a half smile, but at the same time I was like, no, it's not the best thing I've ever seen. Um <laughs> This, this is a rarity that like we've got one person loving, one person hating, and the other person just in that middle ground. Normally, it's like two of us liking it, one not, or all three of us raving about something. I think that's why it's a great film. I think it's because uh, it, because it does polarize, and I, and I can I totally understand it coming into it and not quite getting it is 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 a is a good good viewpoint. But I think because it's such a it's such a film that you if you you do like it, you love it. Uh, and and, it, and it, you do, it does find a way that uh, that it touches you. Then I think it's a film that stays stays with you. I, I don't think it's the best film ever made, and, and, it, and it, but it would be in my top ten just because I think it's got heart, and there's there's so much I do like about it. There are other films that I'll put ahead of it that that always a go to film, but there's something there's a special place for Princess Bride that that makes it a film that that I absolutely champion. Enough said. <laughs> Before we get into fisticuffs, um, let's move away from Princess Bride. <laughs> if you do want to get in touch with us and and also let us know what you think about Princess Bride or any other films that you think we should we should undertake as a deep cut, you can find us on Twitter film at Filmfile UK. I'm curious if you did a poll of what people preferred, would it be Highlander or Princess Bride? I'm going to set that poll up on Twitter today. <laughs> not, to, not to pit you against each other. That could be an interesting one. So over the past few weeks while we've been in lockdown, I've been working through the backlog of films that I've disastrously not got round to watching over the years that people are always shocked with. And so we've been challenging me each week with a different film. And last week, Lee, you gave me... Serpico. And it's interestingly a film that I've not seen in a long, long time. Andy, what did you think? Well, have you seen Serpico, Scott? Uh, I haven't, I'm afraid, no. No, so it's uh, another person who's not got around to watching it. Well, if I was to say that on Letterboxd, I gave this 4.5 stars out of 5, it should hopefully let you know how much I enjoyed it. Mm. It was completely not the film I expected. There's a load of films from that era, the um, corrupt cops kind of films, that have a certain kind of feel to them and like that they all seem very much the same. This was completely not that film. It's a story of a good cop in a bad precinct working undercover to weed out the corruption. And it's adapted from the true life tale told in the book by Peter Mass. It opens with Frank Serpico, played by Al Pacino, having been shot and then flashes back to show the slow buildup of events that lead to him being shot. So you get to like, you start off literally just thrown straight in going, wow, why are we jumping in here? And like, there's just a few like voices saying like, um, well, it could have been anyone who wanted him dead. And it's like, what did he do? And then it goes back to show how as a fresh from the Academy beat cop, he was always this, he, he had this perfect envision of what a cop should be. He wanted to be the good cop. He wanted to treat all villains like with a bit of respect. He wanted to treat everyone like nicely. He thought the best of everyone. He was a genuinely good cop. And then when he gets moved to a precinct that has dirty cops in it and he refuses to take the money, he realizes he's stepping on toes that he shouldn't be stepping on, but he wants them to like be taken out the equation because they he doesn't feel that they represent the force in a good light. And so he goes undercover and starts like slowly try to find out who he can trust and who he can't trust. And what makes this film is Pacino's energy and dedication to the part. He's very easy and likable to take a shine to at the start of the film. You genuinely think, wow, this is a genuinely good person. This is a genuinely like heartfelt person. But then you see him getting more and more frustrated as he gets himself into the rabbit hole that is 
like puts his whole life at risk and his family. It's easy to get caught up within that character. I mean, it's adapted from like a true story. So obviously there's elements in there. And, you know, when you see that someone put themselves through this and the corruption was so rife within the police force at that time that he genuinely didn't know who he could trust. And when he found someone who he could trust, but found that they won't, won't help him, that gets his word out to more people that he's trying to uncover corruption and puts his life at even more risk. It's a stunning performance. Absolutely. You're watching a man, like, his life falling apart throughout the film whilst he's only trying to do the right thing. And the direction from um, Sidney Lumet, knows, he knows how to balance the gritty action with very thought-provoking commentary. It's more than just one of many 70s gritty cop films. It's a really good exploration of a period that the police force should, should be really ashamed of. The police force should be embarrassed that they had that much corruption. It's a tour de force performance, isn't it, by Pacino in this? He, it's absolutely stunning. And there's, even when he starts to like get so desperate that he's snapping at people closest to him, you don't think that he's bad for how he's acting. You just understand that it's the pressure of where he's at that is changing him as a person. Absolutely brilliant performance. And I was just capped, like, within the first five minutes of the film, because of that starting off straight away, it's like, oh, my God, why are we starting with someone who's already been shot? And then it flashes back. It's like, okay, I'm in. And you're locked to the screen because you want to know everything that's led up to that moment. I thoroughly recommend it. Scott, I, I wholeheartedly recommend you to go and check it out. It's, it's definitely one of Pacino's top performances for me. And, you know, the, the guy's delivered some great performances throughout his whole career. But this is one of them that really stands up. I like them too when they teamed up on Dog Day Afternoon. So I don't know why I've not watched it, to be honest. It's just a weird blind spot. It's it's an archetype 70s movie, which was gritty. It had a, a sense of realism. Before the 70s changed, some would say for the better, with Jaws and Star Wars taking over and making films box office. It, it's an adult film. It's a grown-up film. It's Lume at the top of his, uh, uh, top of his game. It's, it's Al Pacino. Before you start to think about him in the sort of cliched Al Pacino performances, this was, again, Pacino at the, at the top of his game. It's a, it's a, it's a stunning film. It's a, it's a real time capsule of the period. And as you say, Andy, and not particularly a, a, a good period for the police force, but, but well worth seeing. So that's Serpico Down. From, this, from your list, Andy, I'm going to choose for you this week the Clint Eastwood film, Flags of Our Fathers. Now, I know that when he made this film, he made it back-to-back with Letters from Iwo Jima. Is it important for me to watch both films? No, but they are... Interestingly, what he did with this is, is they are companion pieces rather than a sequel or a prequel. It's a companion piece from two very distinctive points of view. But it's, again, for me, Clint Eastwood at the top of his game, proving that when he's out of genre and he's, and he's shooting films from the heart, then this is, is, is a great piece of filmmaking. So I'd be really interested uh, to, to know your thoughts on this one. Do you concur, Scott? I have not seen either. Um... Maybe you should both watch it. How about that? I have a weird relationship with Clint Eastwood. It's tough because I, I, I love the old spaghetti westerns. I love Dirty Harry. I love some weird, more modern ones. I love Unforgiven. I know he direct, but it, if you ask me to watch a Clint Eastwood film, I can't do it. Interesting, because I've just watched one of my top top ten or top five even uh, Eastwood films, which is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which he's just brilliant in. And again, when he he, he subtly plays against type. Uh, I, I think that's when he's the strongest. 
But I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this one, uh, Andy, for next week. Okay, so that's Flags of Our Fathers for the next episode. And that about wraps us up for this episode. Again, we're all in isolation, uh, so it's been hard to leave the house and find a neat thing. But go around the, the guys. Guys, what have you got? What's your neat thing for this week? I've been uh, going down the rabbit hole of weird uh, small film documentaries on uh, BBC iPlayer. So I've been, well, not documentaries, but... There's been Mark Kermode's Secrets of Cinema, which like explores just specific genres week to week, if you want a taste of that. And then there's um, Life Cinematic, which is just Edith Bowman sitting down with specific directors to talk about films that help shape their personal sort of creative output. And then there's also loads of inside cinema short video essays. And I've just been getting lost into the stuff um, the BBC and Sky Arts and stuff made available in terms of various art documentaries when at a time I don't feel I can get my film fixed necessarily. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm with you with the uh, Mark Mode's Secrets of Cinema. Absolutely brilliant series. I love the way that he like he basically deep dives into genres yeah. and what, what constitutes aspects of that genre to make them successful. I think he's I don't always agree with things that he says. Yeah, I agree. I don't always agree with his opinion. Sometimes he can be a bit naive in some opinions, but I always respect everything that he's saying. And I love listening to him talk about it. He, he talks about things, something that he loves. And you can tell that it's a love of film that makes him the critic that he is. Well, that's what's great about film discourse of any regard, isn't it? Because I just love deep dives into stuff, even if I don't necessarily agree. Which is why yeah. I've been really enjoying these varying uh, shows. I've still to watch them. I've still to see the Mark Kermode series. Uh, I know the, the the latest series is available on iPlay. I'm not sure if his earlier series is. I know the the special was. Uh, it might be. I watched it at the time. I can't remember. If it, the The Exorcist 25 year one is. He did uh, the excellent Blade Runner one. If you ever get a chance to see that one, mm. and his documentary on Alien is is stunning. Mm. Yeah, well worth seeing. Highly recommended. I, I recommend the. Life cinematic, by the way, it's uh, uh, because uh, Sam Mendes on the first episode, uh, just watching him watch Blue Velvet and talk about it and how it influenced American Beauty and stuff like that, it's definitely worth a watch. For my neat thing, I've mentioned before about my love of podcasts and rewatching TV shows. Uh, when I mentioned the Office Ladies podcast, oh, a good about ten episodes ago, as my neat thing, it was part of like my I'm going to rewatch The Office alongside these well now i've got a new one and it's fake doctors real friends with zach braff and donald Fazer. <laughs> it's three episodes in and they're doing exactly the same as the office ladies podcast does where each episode is an episode of scrubs that they talk about the behind the scenes of the little like aspects of the making of having guests coming on to talk about the show in general and each episode is about one hour 15 and it's brilliant i mean these two guys are two guys who their friendship on that show was so real because that's what they're like in real life and they have a natural bond and really good chemistry and even though they are in the same situation as, as us at the moment they're isolated and having to record over tinterweb you can feel the bond between them while you're listening to it it's funny i have been doing my walks listening to this podcast and being halfway down the road laughing like a maniac with people like not just skirting around me to keep social distancing but skirting around me because they think that's a nutter <laughs> and it's great to again like with the office ladies podcast it's great to listen to this podcast and do a rewatch of the show at the same time either before you listen to the podcast or after it so you can start to see the elements that you talk about 
And I've got such a love for the Scrubs TV show again through this podcast starting up. That's Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach Braff and Donald Faison. You can find it on all podcast services. I'm using it on Spotify. Uh, they play JD and Turk from the show, and they are so brilliant to listen to. I was never a massive fan of Scrubs, but you've actually convinced me that to go back and, and, and revisit it. I, I always thought it was funny. Uh, I think I watched the first season for definite and probably bits and pieces of the second season and liked it, but but never loved it. Uh, mine's a podcast as well. I know we're all big comic fans amongst this. This is based on, uh, this is a, a, a series of radio dramas, for the be- want of a better term, as podcasts, based on the graphic novel by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. And this is Marvel's. I'm Ooh. guessing we all remember the Marvel's run, which was a, an intriguing take on the Marvel Universe seen through the eyes of a, an investigative journalist. This yep. is, a, and I've not got a chance to listen to it yet. I've, I've just downloaded the entire run up, up to date, and, and I can't wait. Uh, this is brought to us by a US company called Stitcher. Uh, they did a fantastic run on Wolverine, uh, finished the first show, uh, about to pick up the second series. But I absolutely loved Marvels. And this takes place as the aftermath of the Fantastic Four's battle with Galactus high above uh, New York City, uh, which was for the fate of the world. And an intrepid photographer, an ambitious college student, and a cynical journalist embark on an investigation to confirm or debunk one of the most superpowered conspiracy theories of all time. Can't wait to get into this. I love a good podcast. I usually listen in the car, but a bit like you, Andy, I'm going to do a walk. And I'm going to take these on in one lump sum and get back to you and let you know how great they are. But that's Marvels based on the uh, graphic series by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. And I know it's available on iTunes. So therefore, all good, uh, good podcasts, just like this one. And that's it for us this week. I hope you're all staying safe. Guys, anything to add before we go? I, I've literally subscribed to both your recommendations before the show was even over. Is that a personal best? <laughs> that's how good well we done. are at recommending. Uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back hopefully next week with another deep dive. Be excellent to each other. Whilst we've been in the lockdown, we, Andy's been myself. Why am I talking about myself? The wrong person. Uh, <laughs>